You're listening to the PT Profit Podcast, episode number 18. Today, I'm talking with Jill Zimmerman all about the truth about training the core for yourself and for your clients. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Beverly Simpson, former fitness manager turned online personal training business owner. And this podcast is where smart fitness professionals, including trainers and clinicians, discover how to increase client performance in movement, package and position their products and services and get out of their own way so that they can increase their revenue to live a life that they love without sleazy sales. Welcome to the PT Profit Podcast. Welcome back to the PT Profit Podcast. I'm super pumped that you're here. Today's interview is a special one, just like every interview. I am so excited about the guests that I bring on to this podcast because they're just so amazing. And this podcast is no exception. Today, I brought Jill Zimmerman, who is a doctor of physical therapy, and she is also a personal trainer and has over 15 years experience. And we talked about the importance of core training, both for yourself and also for your clients. And we talked about common myths that many people miss when they're thinking about the core. So we broke down what the core actually is and went over things that you can consider, whether you are in that camp of no core training is bad, or if you're thinking that core training is sit-ups and Russian twists and bicycles, and whatnot. So this was a very important episode. We talked about people of all ages and how they can manage a diastasis, what a diastasis is, and it was just a really powerful episode. So I'm super excited for you to check it out. Jill, as I said, she's a doctor of physical therapy and she also is a personal trainer and has over 15 years of experience helping people move powerfully and feel and look amazing. She works with both men and women of all ages and it's really her mission to bridge the gap between traditional medicine and fitness. And she's dedicated herself to this mission for her clients so that she can tackle the hard, challenging problems that most people miss. So without further ado, let's dive in to this interview. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, It's my pleasure and privilege. So can you just go ahead and just start us off by sharing with us a little bit about who you are, who you serve, and how you got there? Uh, Yeah. Um, So my name is Jill Zimmerman. I am a uh, physical therapist, um, and I have blended my PT training with a personal training model. So we, um, I actually have a business here called Perfectly Fit in Charleston, South Carolina. And we um, sort of do that combined model. So um, I didn't always do that. I kind of started out as a more traditional PT, but found um, as I experienced sort of, you know, the field and the people I was seeing and the people I was working for that I wanted to sort of um, 
leave that realm and sort of do something that I think makes a much bigger impact in terms of treating the whole body um, as a whole. So that's kind of what I focus on now is sort of troubleshooting and figuring out problems that people have been experiencing with their body for longer periods of time that they may have seen other professionals for and just aren't getting to where they want to be. Um, and so I sort of take those people and look a little bit deeper to find the root cause of what might be contributing to whatever their pain issue is or their movement limitation or just whatever it is that their functional goal may be. So that's sort of um, a lot of, and that's a broad, that's broad, right? So I see people with everything. Um, but I'm especially focused um, more recently in sort of really understanding how the core works, um, how the pelvic floor and breathing uh, uh, are responsible for how that core works and um, helping people really understand how important that is for the, the way that the rest of their body functions. So um, that's sort of something that I'm digging a little bit deeper into. And what I found is that you can pretty much help any issue in the body if you understand those concepts um so that's kind of who i'm serving now i guess <laughs> yeah and i love that and i'm really excited to get into this content specifically with you today because from my experience what i've noticed just in my own in my own profession and, and experience as a trainer is that people tend to not really think about core training and and diastasis specifically they only think about it and associate it with moms and the reason why is because you've got that mom you know the uterus is growing and the impact on the core in terms of the positioning is a drastic clear change but what most people don't realize is that that type of impact happens on all types of people. You don't have to be a mom and that you, you could be a man and suffer from the same type of things that a mom would experience. Right. Right. I mean, there's several myths that kind of go along with that. Right. So there's the whole like, uh, you know, diastasis, which is a separating of the, um, the fascia, the sort of thinning of the fascia in between the rectus abdominis muscles. So the, that, they, you know, that, that only applies to mothers and not anybody else when that's completely not true. I mean, my husband actually has one that, you know, because he, he doesn't, you know, symmetrically fire his core muscles and he has a difficult time connecting with those deep muscles so that you know that's uh, something that you see with everybody um you know one of the other the other myths is that you know just core training is only for aesthetics you know and so that's a, a myth that's definitely needs to be debunked and and the and the exercise that people do to develop a nice aesthetic core can actually cause more bulging in their abdominal wall more forward pressure more sort of like that poochy look if not done correctly so um that's another one um and then and then the other thing is that like you know core training from like a more of like a rehab perspective is like only for people with back pain, you know, like you only do dead bugs if you have back pain. You only do, um, you know, like you only want to get those transverse abdominis muscles. Only people with back pain need those muscles, you know. So it's sort of like getting out of that idea and just saying, you know what, like this is something that everybody needs to focus on. And it's not about aesthetics and it's not about moms. It's about function for everybody. It's about your mom, my mom, your dad, you know, your brother, sister, um, your children, you know, like teaching them how to sort of like 
uh, hold themselves and move in a way that creates more uh, strength and power in their entire body and a, a behavioral change that they can take with them um, for the rest of their lives. And that's sort of for everybody. I mean, it's never too late to make those type of changes. So, yeah, right. I'm super excited to get into this, especially the myths, because I'll say too, you know, as a trainer, back in the day, I used to have this, you know, really dogmatic approach in how I train. And it was kind of this like, oh, if you do core training, that means that you're not a really smart trainer because all smart trainers know that you shouldn't train the core. But that's like one of, that's just, that's just dogma essentially and not true. So I'm excited. Right. I think that like you don't even have to think about it like that. Like that's not how that's actually not how I think about the core. I don't think about like planks. I don't think about like, you know, just core focused. When I think talk about the core, I'm talking about like how are we integrating that core with the entire system of the entire body and how that moves, right? So basically what I say all the time on like a broken record is that like every exercise is a core exercise. If you know how to create positioning, your positioning in your body to make that happen basically. Um, so it's, it, we can step away from like core training is like sit-ups and crunches and Russian twists and you know, all that kind of stuff and, and start, looking at it through a different lens in terms of what does core training really mean and how does it apply functionally to everybody yeah. with the exercise that they want to do. <laughs> uh, you know? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So I'm definitely going to start there. And also, but just for the record side note, I, it's really amazing to watch my children grow and develop because my eldest Gwendolyn, she has a massive diastasis as yeah. she, learning and I know that that's normal in kids but then when I look at how Abby moves she doesn't mm -hmm. so it's just so interesting I love it so um can you dive in a little deeper to tell us a little more about you know what it is that you are specifically talking about when you're referring to core training what the core is and just kind of you know where you start essentially yeah so I guess what I find is that people don't fully understand the core system, right? So people think that the core is like your abs, right? Even if people do know that there's a lot more to it than that, they're still sort of stuck in this like ab thing, <laughs> you know? So when we talk about the core, we're not talking about just the abdominals, um, though those are nice, but we're talking about sort of a, a, a core canister, a pressurized canister, right? So on the top of the canister, we have the diaphragm, on the bottom, we have the pelvic floor muscles. And then wrapping all the way around, we have the abdominals. So um, there's four layers of abdominals. You have the transverse abdominus, which is your deepest layer, your internal oblique, your external oblique, and then your rectus abdominus um, on the top. And the rectus is the one that most people train the most. So that's the muscle that's responsible for like your crunches and your sit-ups um, and all your sort of like front-loaded exercises. Um, the problem with that is that Often, if those are overtrained and the deeper muscles are undertrained, there's an imbalance in the system, okay? And that can result in diastasis, it can result in doming, it can result in pressure going in places we don't want it to go, such as downward into the pelvic floor. It can result in compensation patterns of the psoas kicking in, so your deep hip flexor muscle kicking on to help stabilize um, an imbalanced system. So whenever you have 
muscles in one area that are becoming more dominant than another, there's always like an, an equal and opposite reaction, right? <laughs> so it's like everything goes back to sort of biomechanics and physics in terms of how do we keep a body in equilibrium. And so my way of thinking with the core is like, it's definitely not about aesthetics. It's like, how do we make this entire system work so that it's not fighting itself to maintain equilibrium? How do we make it stack and really strong so that, um, you know, the, all the, the, the extremities can work the way they want to without feeling dysfunction. So um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm looking at with that. So to go deeper into it, you want to look more outside of the abs, right? So like I said, the top and the bottom of that core canister is the diaphragm, which is your muscle that you breathe with and your pelvic floor muscles, which helps support the core from the bottom up. And those muscles are extremely important for um, obviously bowel and bladder control, but also, um, you know, to make, keep your organs inside your body, but also those muscles attach to your pelvis and they help to stabilize your pelvis and your spine, just like all the other muscles that attach to your pelvis and your spine. So we learn um, in PT school and with, you know, some training that the transverse abdominis, those deep abdominal layers help to stabilize the spine, right? Well, so does the pelvic floor, okay? So we need to stop thinking that it's just abs, it has to be more the entire picture, okay? So, and this is not, again, this is not just for women who have had children, okay? There are many people with pelvic floors that are not doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it, who have never had um, babies, okay? I mean, I have, I, I know people who have, uh, when they were children, they've, they've leaked jumping on a trampoline ever since they were young kids, okay? So people remember that, and that's, obviously not something that resulted from, um, from being pregnant. So we have to understand that pelvic floor function, though it is implicated from having a baby, it is not something, that is not a requirement, okay? So it's something that you need to consider on absolutely everybody when you're trying to understand how to get the entire core package to work together. And that's important. Um, you know, if you're struggling with somebody trying to get their core to connect, start thinking more about the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. So if we go back to the diaphragm, we need to talk about breathing, which is incredibly important for core function. You see people all the time who are holding their breath when they're doing a core exercise or anything that's straining in any way. And that's because they're not able to coordinate contracting their abdominals and letting their diaphragm contract and relax at the same time, okay? And so that's just one thing to really consider and think about and, and learn how to train in a client or learn how to do yourself. It's so important. I mean, breathing is one of those underrated and underestimated components to what we do every single day because we've just done it on automation since we since birth. And so we don't think that putting attention to that actually matters because it's something we just do naturally. And I'm putting that in quotations, right. not recognizing that it does have such an impact on our core. Now, something that I'm curious about that you said, because you talked a lot about the pelvic floor, which I now recognize. And I'll be honest, I was a trainer for, you know, six, five years before I had babies and pelvic floor wasn't even 
brought up in my training until I had children. So I'm curious as to, you know, how does someone get, you know, someone who's not a mom interested in their pelvic floor? Like if you're training males, for example, they have pelvic floors. Right. Or not often talk, you know, how do you get them to start thinking about it or start, you know, you know, how do you recognize symptoms that they could potentially, you know, do well? Yeah, so, so men, men, male pelvic floor anatomy and female pelvic floor anatomy are very different. So men certainly do not have as many issues with pelvic floor um, than, than women do. And, and because of that, they're able to generate better pressure from the bottom of that core canister than women are typically just based on the fact that literally don't, they don't have holes down there that are creating leaks of pressure. Okay. So if you just think about it like that, we're, it's leaking pressure out of the bottom because there's two, there's more holes down there than a woman than there is in a male. And so there's just a, a a disconnection of the entire system because of that. And so, um, where was I going with this? Um, <laughs> so men have, have a much easier time contracting. So um, it, it's a little bit more difficult to, I don't tend to have to bring it up with men as much as I do with women. I have to bring up breathing with men. And, and because I talk about the breathing, they're going to have sort of a, a relationship with their pelvic floor because of that, because the way that the breathe, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor work together, they're gonna automatically sort of kick that in for the most part. Women, however, that can be totally off balance, right? Um, and, and sometimes women don't know it, right? So like I always screen for it, you know, um, I ask about pregnancy, if you had any children, you know, what kind of um, delivery you had, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't always come up in that. So sometimes it comes up as like um, chronic, you know, SI joint pain. You know, I just always, I've just always had this SI joint or this sciatica that kind of comes and goes. Um, you know, maybe it, it's, it seems to go with somebody's cycle, okay, because the pelvic floor can kind of, I, I'm, I'm going to say shut on and off just for language, but like it, it can basically like be more um, stimulated or not depending on your cycle. So um, those type of things can make a big difference. Um, like leaking is sort of like the obvious one, but some people honestly like don't even know that leaking is a symptom of a pelvic floor problem. <laughs> like they like they just don't even put it together. Like they're just like, yeah, I guess that is my pelvic floor, isn't it? Um, and and um, to be fair and honest, a lot of people don't even know where their pelvic floor is. So there's a lot of education that just goes along with it. Um, you know, even even people that just have had chronic. Um, you know, hip, hip, uh, hip impingement, labral tears, um, things like that. The pelvic floor muscles work so intricately with the muscles that sort of stabilize the hip um, that there's a lot of dysfunctions that can come in that area. So even if you're not having, you know, your stereotypical pelvic floor issues, say you're just like a runner and you just always get like hip impingement and you're a female. Um, that's something that I would want to look at is where is there an imbalance with the way that that pelvic floor is connecting, especially on one side versus the other. And, and, and because you're looking for stabilization around that hip from that pelvic floor. And if you're not getting it from the pelvic floor, like I said, the other muscles that attach around it 
that hip have to sort of work double duty to, to stabilize and, and maneuver that hip. So that's sort of why we see these compensation patterns that result from dysfunctional muscles such as the pelvic floor. Um, so just a couple examples. I love that you bring that up because hip impingement and hip pain and hip symptoms don't typically get associated with pelvic floor dysfunction. People will automatically go to, oh, we need to strengthen the glute, not recognizing that you got a whole slew of other muscles to pay attention to. Sure, absolutely. And I, I think that just from a PT perspective, I see a lot of like mismanagement of people with hip problems. They, they don't people, you know, you're, you're right. It's sort of like, oh, strengthen your glute or stretch your psoas. And then other than that, we're kind of like, you, what else do we do? You know? <laughs> yeah. Like send out a prayer, you know? So it's like, I think it's really important to like really understand the anatomy of the pelvis and the hip and how those two structures work together and how uh, people absorb forces and pressure when their foot hits the ground and how it goes through their foot all the way up into their pelvis and 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 just how the entire system works together so um but yeah you're absolutely right hips are hips are a big confused area for some a lot of people <laughs> so you did i love the way that you talked about how you know men typically don't have to deal with the pelvic floor or they don't have to put a lot of attention or as much attention to it the way women do because just based on our anatomy so i'm as since they don't have as you know as big of an opportunity i guess to leak pressure through the pelvic floor where does their pressure typically go um, so they're able to generate a little bit more pressure from the bottom up. So sometimes they'll create more forward pressure. Um, so I'll actually see quite a few men with diastasis, several actually. Um, and fit men too, you know, you, you kind of like you can run the gamut, you know, you can have really fit men with diastasis. You can have sort of your rotund belly overweight dad who like put you know does a little crunch little sit up and you can see this alien baby kind of come out of their the middle of their stomach so um that tends to be a little bit more of where their pressure goes is forwards so you'll actually see um you'll actually see sort of inverse relationships happen with people right so some people who have a really strong connected pelvic floor end up with a little bit more diastasis if they're still having trouble managing their core pressure. And people who have really worked hard to close that diastasis but haven't addressed the pelvic floor can actually end up with prolapse symptoms or damage to their pelvic floor because of that. So there's a really strong lesson to be learned there and disclaimer that if you're working to close a diastasis, for example, and you have not addressed your pelvic floor strength, you could be putting yourself in a very vulnerable situation. So we need to find balance of all the pressures and where it, where it goes, okay? And where the pressure should go is a little bit more into the rib cage and the thorax so that we're not creating so much downward and forward pressure into our abdominal and pelvic floor areas. So teaching people how to breathe properly and expand their rib cage is how you're really going to help somebody generate that core, the, the correct amount of core pressure that they need. And there's a lot of discussion right now going on about breathing and you can go down like the deepest rabbit hole ever in terms of breathing but 
from what I've found that works best for me and the clients that I teach is that if you just honestly keep it as simple as possible, you can get incredible results without having to like torture yourself <laughs> of like really trying to figure it all out. Like just learn enough to like help somebody understand what I'm talking about in terms of like connecting better with their, with their core and knowing how to breathe while they maintain that core pressure because a lot of people belly breathe and that ends up being part of the problem. <laughs> we can go into that if we want to. <laughs> know that there's no lungs in the belly. Mm -mm. You know, interesting though, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I had a singer's background. So I did musical theater. So I had learned how to diaphragmatically breathe from the ages of, you know, since I was a kid. Breathing was, you know, we always were focusing on breathing, but what was interesting and what was different is that there was a huge, as a singer, because you are using your air, there was a huge effort or attention put towards keeping that rib cage expanded, even though you were exhaling. So uh. it was, you know, because you were trying to keep that canister open. And so you're, which is completely counterintuitive to what you're supposed to be doing. Interesting. Right. And so as I'm exhaling, I'm trying to stay expanded. Huh. All right, which, which is why I think is part of my personal, for those of you who are familiar, I'm a wide ISA. Yeah. Well, I'm really wide in the rib cage. And I think that part of it is because I was constantly trying to train my body to stay wide. Yeah, that's interesting. No one's actually, I keep, I, whenever I run into singers, I try to understand like what their breathing training was and no one's explained it like that. So that's really actually pretty interesting. Now I know, thank you. <laughs> But I remember because, you know, when I was in school, you know, you'd also take Pilates class or you'd take, you know, you'd have to do a movement and they'd be like talking about it in the exact opposite. No, no, no. You need to completely exhale, fully let your air go, let those rib cage come together. Sure. The singer, you're like, no, you're not supposed to do that. So it was really just a confusing time in terms of your breath. But I now realize the impact right. that in terms of my movement and my core strength. Right, that's so interesting. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that totally makes sense why you're wide. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yeah. Really uh, so, you know, I'm curious too, you, you started to go into some symptoms that trainers could start paying attention to. What mm -hmm. are some red flags that you start, that you would, you know, tell someone to key into, to start paying attention to, and to focus on core training? Um, you know, it's kind of difficult because a lot of times when you're training somebody, you know, they have their clothes on. So you're, you can't see their abs very well. Um, but sometimes, you know, if you're curious, you could ask your client if they could, if they're a female, if they could just kind of tuck their shirt underneath their sports bra so you can just see what their abdominal wall is doing while they move. It's similar to like, hey, let's take your shoes off so I can see what your feet are doing. You know, it's, it's sort of, it, it, sometimes it can go a long way in terms of, of, of helping somebody move better, not, not just to like, you know, to, to move better, but to feel better and get more out of the exercise in general. So when you are, able to look at um, their stomach, what you, what you want to see is, are they able to maintain like flatness sort of across their abdominal wall? Um, or do they sort of 
kind of create like more of a, a, a mound or a dome in the middle of their stomach as it sort of flattens off over the sides, okay? And so that doming, even if it's not a separation or a diastasis, but that doming is sort of an indication that we're getting a little bit more activation of that rectus abdominis and the um, external obliques probably uh, versus the internal obliques and the transverse abdominis. So being able to balance that system out, okay? You can also look for breath holding, okay? So people will, like I said, mentioned before, hold their breath. Um, the minute you tell them to take a breath, I want you to breathe, go ahead and, and, and take a big, big breath in. They completely lose the form of the exercise when they take that breath in. That's an indication that they cannot breathe and hold core control at the same time, um, which is a problem, <laughs> right? Because the um, core exercise. Right, and you need to be able to breathe and maintain the position that you're trying to to strengthen in. Okay, so um, you know you can look at general postures. Posture can be cues that somebody's not activating their core as much as they should. So if they're, you know, in a strong anterior tilt while they're, you know, coming in and out of a lunge or a squat, you know, you you're kind of thinking maybe they're not. They don't have established abdominal control during that movement, right? So they're relying a little bit more on their hip flexors or hip flexors and their back extensors to control the position of their spine versus their abdominal wall. So things like that can be cues. I, I would, these, none of these are really like red flags, like nothing is dangerous about this. It's just more like, what can you notice that's cueing you in to like, maybe we need to dial in a little bit more on, on this. Um, anytime somebody mentions like pressure, and people aren't going to mention this unless you ask them about it, but pressure on their pelvic floor, sort of like pressure feeling, bulging feeling, those are leaning more towards red flags. Leaking is obviously a red flag that something is off in that pressure system, and it is extremely common. Um, so nothing to be embarrassed about there. It's just a symptom um, that's indicates an indicator light of something bigger that's going on in the system. You know, it's not really the pelvic force fault. It's the entire system not working together. Yeah. And you also said something that's a really, you know, important thing to know, which is that people aren't going to tell you, right? So even if you do an assessment and even if you say, oh, you know, you ask like, do you have any injuries, anything I should know about you? want to be specific and actually ask them like, hey, are you leaking? Do you have pain? Is there pressure here? Because oftentimes, like I know for me in my experience, they'll say to me later, oh yeah, that happens. I just never told you because that's not something I need to think about. And yeah. Or people just don't think it's related. They're yeah. just like, ah, I, I just didn't think it had anything to do with that. You know, so it, it, you do have to kind of, and you know, if you know, you don't, you might not want to do it on the very first appointment with somebody, but if you start to establish a relationship with somebody and you're really trying to help them and you're really trying to figure some things out, these are questions that are important because I'm telling you, the question that you don't ask, that's usually the one that's going to give you exactly what you need to figure out what's, what's going on. It, it happens to me all the time. Um, something will come up weeks after working with somebody and I'm like, why didn't you tell me that on day one? You know, and it's like really shame on me for not really, um, picking up on the fact that I needed to ask that particular question, you know, yeah, so. For sure, for sure. And we live and we learn and that's how we learn. 
Yeah. And then you, you, you figured out on one person and then you start thinking about it for the next person, you know? So, yeah. Things are also going to show up in different ways, different, like some person will come up with hip pain and some person will have the traditional low back pain. Right. Ex exactly. Exactly. Um, and like I said, it's just, it, it can be just a pressure issue. You know, like I said, sometimes it's really not the pelvic floor's fault. It's just the pelvic floor can only do so much, right? Like if you could, if you're generating too much pressure down for years, the muscle's going to give out. <laughs> like it's going to get tired, right? And that's what you see with leaking a lot is uh, uh, not so much like a, a, a pelvic floor that's just tired, <laughs> right? It is straining so hard to hold up against that pressure. So um, got to think about it that way. Which is such a good point, and which is why I also think it gets associated with age. Because, well, aside from the fact yeah. that there's not a lot of revenue that is spent on women's health specifically, and so we can't really differentiate between what is causation and what is correlation, but typically pelvic floor symptoms get associated with age, and they say, yeah. That's just for older people, but that's just not entirely, that's just not true. We just see it more in the older population because they've just had more years of extensive leaking pressure into the pelvic floor. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of band-aids that are being done for women's health issues right now <laughs> um, that that you know but and there's a lot of things like that like a lot of things are just blamed on age because you have less muscle mass as you get older you lose a little bit of strength you know there's a lot of you know dysfunctions we'll say in the body that are blamed on just getting older However, <laughs> that, that doesn't mean that you can't still work on them and manage them, right? And like I said, there are children who, who leak on trampolines. You know, they distinctly remember, oh, I did that as a kid. I remember it. I, could, I never wanted to go on a trampoline because I'd always pee myself a little bit, you know? So it's not an age thing. It's a um, system, not pressure system, not working together thing. And as you go, you're right, as you get older and the years tack on and you're just pushing up against that pressure and you haven't changed the way that your body's moving or connecting or managing pressure, that that is going to cause more strain as the years go on on those tissues. And that's just, again, physics and, and just, you know, light tension on muscles over time. So you actually brought up children in and trampolines and that just kind of jogged my memory or my thought process to ask you and wonder if, if, you know, bedwetting when you're a kid and you get into like a, you know, as you get into older stages of bedwetting, is that also a symptom of pelvic floor and pressure stuff or not? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a professional on bedwetting. <laughs> I don't, I haven't researched enough on what is behind bedwetting. Um, one of the things I actually did come across was that a client actually told me was that constipation can be a cause of bedwetting. And I think it's just like this extra added pressure forward uh, from like an impacted bowel kind of onto the, um, the bladder. Wow. And it just, yeah, exactly. So honestly, I don't, I don't know research at all. I don't really want to comment on it because I don't know enough about like what is behind bedwetting. Um, mine is still not night trained, so I'm trying, well, <laughs> maybe I'll cross that bridge when I get frustrated enough to like 
start really researching it. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I just was curious because it kind of just made me think about, you know, pressure management and what happens at any end. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know in kids versus adults in terms of like urinary urgency and things like that, if it's the same mechanism behind it or if it's something different. I just haven't, I haven't looked into it enough. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so then the other thing I wanted to ask too is um, something that I really love about your work specifically is as a physical therapist, you are incorporating a lot of you know, fitness into your work. And you're talking about the importance of, of you know, sharpening that saw and getting stronger and really kind of bridging the gap between the two professions. Can you speak a little bit as to why you don't find that as often? Like, why is it that there's so many like clinicians that are like, no, don't strength train. You have to just rehab. Cause they don't know how. <laughs> okay. So honestly, it's, it, it can be that simple. Okay. So many PTs who went to PT school, don't have a training background. There are several that do, and they're and I love that. I think that if you're a trainer and then go to PT school, that is a phenomenal background to have because um, you can really combine your skills and, and incorporate them. But I think that it's sort of this this driven thing, um, and I don't know why, but PTs are very focused on you know rehab and being very delicate, and they don't think that the body is capable of doing. Um, putting a lot of strain and stress on it. And they, they kind of stick to these little itty bitty sort of rehab exercises, which you really do need to do if you have somebody who has like an acute injury, um, you need to be not putting a ton of load on it because that would be extremely dangerous if you had somebody who, you know, had like this acute disc bulge or something like that. Um, but when you have somebody who's, and this is sort of where I specialize is people who have had just sort of like underlying issues that have been going on for a long time. So oftentimes what they need is more full body integration. Okay. Because the PT that's just been doing shoulder exercises for a shoulder impingement is not understanding that that shoulder is not moving well because it's attached to a thorax that's not moving well because the thorax, the person doesn't know how to breathe well and manage their core pressure. And therefore they don't articulate well through their pelvis and their hips. And so when they go to throw a ball or, you know, pick their kids up, they don't have that whole body strength from the bottom up to support the action of whatever they're trying to do with their shoulders. So it's extremely important to look at how the, the entire body works together in integrated movement patterns. Okay. So I think that integrated movement patterns are sort of something that PTs don't understand as well as trainers do. From what I've experienced from working with trainers and learning from trainers is that they really get it. Like they understand how the body moves. They play around with exercises. They feel their body. They see what adding this does to, oh, let me see if I add this band, like, can I get my glute to work? PTs don't bother with that. They go off of a lot of the times what they learned in school, um, what the books told them, and they don't explore as much, I think, as trainers tend to. And this is obviously my generalized opinion. There are obviously incredible PTs out there who are doing great stuff and they do everything I just said. But 
I think in, in, in general, there's this misunderstanding of integrated movement patterns and also a fear and a, um, and just the fact that they don't know how to put load on. I didn't know how to lift weights. Like I had to get Katie St. Clair to physically take me to the gym and show me how to like do a front squat. Like I didn't even know how to set it up. Like, mm -hmm. and that's just my background. And I think that there's a lot of PTs who fall into a similar type background. So I think it's, and when I started putting load on my body, a lot of the pain issues that I had been experienced experiencing for years because I'm a very active person and I'm, I'm going to move and I'm going to do what I want to do, but it would, you know, it would set me back with neck pain for weeks if I went wakeboarding, you know? So when I started putting load on my body and really just getting a whole body stronger, a lot of these little aches and pains started going away without really having to do my like traditional PT rehab exercises on them. So I found it extremely valuable and now I like to integrate sort of an approach that looks at it from both sides. Yeah, I love that. How did you get into PT? Yeah, I get this question all the time. I'm <laughs> so I have like a weird, like boring story. Like I am like, I was like an average high school athlete, you know, um, never actually had like a major injury. Like a lot of people get into PT because they like had tore their ACL or, you know, something like that. I had to go through PT themselves never had it, never experienced PT, never been. Um, I think I just went to college and I, you know, I, I was very active and I liked movement um, and I liked health and education and I wanted to like do something where I could interact with people and I wanted to like work with people and help people. And I kind of went in between being a physician's assistant and being a PT and you had to take organic chemistry to become a physician, physician's assistant. So I decided to be a PT instead <laughs> because chemistry, chem one and two were like my worst sciences. So I was like, mm -mm, not going there. So I was like, great, PT school it is. So I went to PT school like immediately after I graduated college. I was a kinesiology major, like uh, literally two weeks later, I started PT school for like three years straight. Um, and then kind of went from there. Um, and I actually was, I really wanted to do neuro PT. I wanted to work with people who had had sort of life-changing um, neurological injuries. You know, um, I worked on a spinal, spinal cord injury floor at a rehab hospital for a while. Um, and I really liked it, but it really affected me sort of like emotionally and mentally. It was really challenging and it was really hard demanding <laughs> work physically too. Um, and so I ended up going more into like an ortho route, which I never thought I would do, but um, it's, it's, really, it's really been a, a good direction for me because especially now, um, blending what I'm doing and having my own business, I have a lot more flexibility in my schedule versus being sort of like tied down to a hospital setting. <laughs> so um, it's just been really nice to sort of try to take control of a career path and not have it be exactly what you thought it was going to be at the beginning. <laughs> yes. I mean, isn't that true? Um, yeah. What led you, was there anything specific that led you to learning more about fitness? Um, honestly, it had to do with, um, yeah. Um, so like after I had my child, I had some pelvic floor issues and I had 
a diastasis and I worked, um, I did Sarah Duval's core exercise solutions and I went through all her programming and I became certified in what she does. And I, I was working towards my really, you know, selfishly trying to get my own body back together. But right. I was realizing that I had this like fear of sort of pushing it and bringing it to the next level, you know, like I would go to the gym and Katie Sinclair would see me there and I would be doing like my stupid, like rehabby exercises. And she'd be like, can you, she would literally like yell at me from the, cause I'd be like 40 minutes into it. And I'm still like doing breath work and like, you know, <laughs> doing like these ridiculous things. And she's like, can you go lift some heavy weights please? And that's when I was like, I know she's right but I don't know what to do. Like I thought taking like an eight pound dumbbell and doing like a bent over row was like lifting heavy. Like I didn't know what to do. And so that's when I actually asked for help, <laughs> which is not always easy. And I asked Katie to help me, you know? And so that's really when I started going like, this is going to be worth a shot. Let me try this. And when I did, I recognized that all of the, little hurdles, the little like leftover things that I couldn't quite clear up with my body cleared up when I started getting stronger and getting more into fitness. And so that's when I was like hooked and I was like, now this makes sense. This is what everybody needs. You know, I'm really going to embrace this and start to, you know, do it with everybody that I see. So good. You bring up so many good points. Like I just going to drive two main points that I, that I really heard and what you were saying is that ones that, and I've noticed this a lot in the people that are the most successful ask for help themselves, right? I mean, I'm never going to ask somebody to do something that I won't do or practice myself. And I know right. that that really challenging. So I just think that's also really important and something too that you brought up a lot, which is another reason why I think coaching and asking for help is so important is that so many people look to these really standardized, this is what the book said, this is what the school, you know, what school said, just not recognizing that everybody's so different in how we move and how we compensate and things are going to come up when you start implementing that's not going to be the same as what it said in the book. So what do you do? You know? Right. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the thing. It's every, everybody's different. And I, and I come across this all the time, you know, people look at, look through Instagram and they're like, I tried this exercise and it's just, I don't know if I'm just not doing it right. And I'm like, well, maybe it's just not like appropriate for you. Like maybe that's not exactly what you need, you know? And so everybody's different and everybody, you know, not everybody needs breathing, not, you know, everybody needs sort of like a, a like a very, you know, a, an approach that works for them. Um, and I like what you said about like asking for help. I think that that's not something that comes naturally to me, but what I've found over the last few years since I've been working on it is that um, it's extremely empowering in a way, because when you ask for help, you get somebody to teach you something right? So you get to learn from them. Like when I asked you for help to help me with my, my business, um, to help kind of get my foot off the ground and, and reach more people. And, and, you know, that was extremely educational for me because I learned so much from you. And I learned that 
what you, I can learn a little bit of what you do and, and use it myself. And that's a very empowering thing to not be afraid of like, well, I just don't know anything about marketing. Like I can't, I can't, I can't do what I want to do. I can't re meet my goals because I don't know how to do this. You know, so asking somebody for help is the first step into like understanding it and being more comfortable with something so that you can start to like peck away at your goals a little bit and not be, not come up with more excuses, not to do something, Yes, <laughs> which is what I tend to do. It's like, I just don't know, what to do, you know, no, I relate. So that's been very, that. Yeah. I mean, I relate just, and I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast relate because we are leaders in our industry and it's hard as a leader to, to, to recognize and say, Oh, I need help with this. Or I could use some assistant or a new perspective, a new way to look at it. But right. when you can do that, you just become more powerful and to your client. Because if a client yeah. comes to me and says, something that I don't know anything about, but I've built a network of people around me that can help me, then I'm going to be more valuable to my client because now I can point them in the right direction instead of trying to pretending to be everything to them, an amateur clinician, a nutritionist, a, you know, everything. It's more powerful. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how much clients appreciate that. That's been a model that I've sort of embraced and people i mean the amount of like trust and you become like their buddy like they're like okay who do i see for this like people are asking me like who i see for a dentist i'm like all right let me like find you the best dentist around town you know it's like they trust your opinion and that's how you create really good relationships with people and really good relationships is what's going to create a a, a lasting business model for you in terms of um, this type of business where you're really interacting with people and, and trying to help them be, you know, healthy and well. Yeah. Um, long term. So, so yeah. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, I definitely want to be super mindful of your time and just thank you so much. This has been such an informative podcast. People are really going to love this. I know it. So for those of you who want to hang out more with Jill, where should I send them? Um, well, probably my Instagram, um, Jill Zimmerman with one N at the end PT. Um, you can find me there. Um, uh, you can message me through there if you want to contact me. Um, that's probably the best place. Um, I also, you know, have like a general website on perfectlyfitcharleston.com if you want to check out more about like my model, business model, and then you can also contact me obviously through that as well. Okay. Awesome. So of course, we're going to link all of that up in the show notes. So for those of you who want to go follow her, she, she puts out incredible content. So you definitely want to make sure you're following her. So thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the PT Profit Podcast. If you like this episode, chances are your friends will too. So it would be a huge service to us if you would please leave us a review and share with your friends on your social media channels. When you leave us a review, be sure to take a screenshot of it and email that screenshot to my team at info at bsimpsonfitness.com. And we'll send you a very special Instagram podcast that will show you how to create compelling content so that your ideal clients come to you and you go from wanting clients to a wait list of clients ready for your services.
Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.